This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Steve Brown. The Age of Reason by Thomas Paine. Part 2, Section 21. Deism, then, teaches us, without the possibility of being deceived, all that is necessary or proper to be known. The creation is the Bible of the deist. He there reads, in the handwriting of the Creator himself, the certainty of his existence and the immutability of his power, and all other Bibles and Testaments are to him forgeries. The probability that we may be called to account hereafter will, to a reflecting mind, have the influence of belief, for it is not our belief or disbelief that can make or unmake the fact. As this is the state we are in, in which it is proper we should be in, as free agents, it is the fool only, and not the philosopher, or even the prudent man, that would live as if there were no God. But the belief of a God is so weakened by being mixed with the strange fable of the Christian creed, and with the wild adventures related in the Bible, and of the obscurity and obscene nonsense of the Testament, that the mind of man is bewildered as in a fog. Viewing all these things in a confused mass, he confounds fact with fable. And as he cannot believe all, he feels a disposition to reject all. But the belief of a God is a belief distinct from all other things and ought not to be confounded with any. The notion of a trinity of gods has enfeebled the belief of one God. A multiplication of beliefs acts as a division of belief, and in proportion as anything is divided, it is weakened. Religion, by such means, becomes a thing of form instead of fact, of notion instead of principles. Morality is banished to make room for an imaginary thing called faith, and this faith has its origin in a supposed debauchery. A man is preached instead of God, and execution is an object for gratitude. The preachers daub themselves with the blood, like a troop of assassins, and pretend to admire the brilliancy it gives them. They preach a humdrum sermon on the merits of the execution, then praise Jesus Christ for being executed, and condemn the Jews for doing it. A man, by hearing all this nonsense lumped and preached together, confounds the God of the creation with the imagined God of the Christians, and lives as if there were none. Of all the systems of religion that ever were invented, there is none more derogatory to the Almighty, more unedifying to man, more repugnant to reason and more contradictory in itself than this thing called Christianity. Too absurd for belief, too impossible to convince, and too inconsistent for practice, it renders the heart torpid and produces only atheists and fanatics. As an engine of power, it serves the purpose of despotism, and as a means of wealth, the avarice of priests. But so far as respects the good of man in general, it leads to nothing here or hereafter. 
the only religion that has not been invented and that has in it every evidence of divine originality is pure and simple deism. It must have been the first and will probably be the last that man believes. But pure and simple deism does not answer the purpose of despotic governments. They cannot lay hold of religion as an engine. But by mixing it with human inventions and making their own authority a part, neither does it answer the avarice of priests. But by incorporating themselves and their functions with it and becoming, like the government, a party in the system, it is this that forms the otherwise mysterious connection of church and state the church humane, and the state tyrannic. Were man impressed as fully and as strongly as he ought to be with the belief of a God, his moral life would be regulated by the force of that belief. He would stand in awe of God and of himself, and would not do the thing that could not be concealed from either. To give this belief the full opportunity of force, it is necessary that it acts alone. This is deism. But when, according to the Christian Trinitarian scheme, one part of God is represented by a dying man, and another part called the Holy Ghost, by a flying pigeon, it is impossible that belief can attach itself to such wild conceits. Footnote. The book called the Book of Matthews says, chapter 3, verse 16, that the Holy Ghost descended in the shape of a dove. It might as well have said a goose. The creatures are equally harmless, and the one is as much of a nonsensical lie as the other. The second of Acts, verse 2 and 3, says that it descended in a mighty rushing wind in the shape of cloven tongues. Perhaps it was cloven feet. Such absurd stuff is only fit for tales of witches and wizards. End of footnote. It has been the scheme of the Christian Church and of all the other invented systems of religion to hold man in ignorance of the Creator, as it is of government to hold man in ignorance of his rights. The systems of the one are as false as those of the other and are calculated for mutual support. The study of theology, as it stands in Christian churches, is the study of nothing. It is founded on nothing. It rests on no principles. It proceeds by no authorities. It has no data. It can demonstrate nothing, and it admits of no conclusion. Not anything can be studied as a science without our being in possession of the principles upon which it is founded. And as this is not the case with Christian theology, it is therefore the study of nothing. Instead, then, of studying theology, as is now done, out of the Bible and Testament, the meanings of which books are always controverted and the authenticity of which is disproved, it is necessary that we refer to the Bible of the creation. The principles we discover there are eternal and of a divine origin. They are the foundation of all the science that exists in the world and must be the foundation of theology. We can know God only through his works. We cannot have a conception of any one attribute, but by following some principle that leads to it. 
we have only a confused idea of his power, if we have not the means of comprehending something of its immensity. We can have no idea of his wisdom, but by knowing the order and manner in which it acts. The principles of science lead to this knowledge, for the creator of man is the creator of science, and it is through that medium that man can see God, as it were, face to face. Could a man be placed in a situation and endowed with the power of vision to behold at one view and to contemplate deliberately the structure of the universe to mark the movements of the several planets, the cause of their varying appearances, the unerring order in which they revolve, even to the remotest comet, their connection and dependence on each other, and to know this system of laws established by the Creator that governs and regulates the whole, he would then conceive, far beyond what any church theology can teach him, the power, the wisdom, the vastness, the munificence of the Creator. He would see then that all the knowledge man has of science and that all the mechanical arts by which he renders his situation comfortable here are derived from that source, his mind, exalted by the scene and convinced by the fact, would increase in gratitude as it increased in knowledge. His religion or his worship would become united with its improvement as a man. Any employment he followed that had any connection with the principles of the creation, as everything of agriculture, of science, and of the mechanical arts has, would teach him more of God and of the gratitude he owes to him than any theological Christian sermon he now hears. Great objects inspire great thoughts. Great munificence excites great gratitude. But the groveling tales and doctrines of the Bible and the Testament are fit only to excite contempt. Though man cannot arrive, at least in this life, at the actual scene I have described, he can demonstrate it, because he has a knowledge of the principles upon which the creation is constructed. See footnote. We know that the works can be represented in model, and that the universe can be represented by the same means, the same principles by which we measure an inch or an acre of ground will measure to millions in extent. A circle of an inch diameter has the same geometrical properties as a circle that would circumscribe the universe, the same properties of a triangle that will demonstrate upon a paper the course of a ship, will do it on the ocean, and when applied to what are called the heavenly bodies, will ascertain to a minute the time of an eclipse. Though these bodies are millions of miles from us, this knowledge is of divine origin, and it is from the Bible of the creation that man has learned it, and not from the stupid Bible of the church that teacheth man nothing. All the knowledge man has of science and of machinery, by the aid of which his existence is rendered comfortable upon earth, and without which he would be scarcely distinguishable in appearance and condition from a common animal, comes from the great machine and structure of the universe, the constant and unwearied observations of our ancestors upon the movements and revolutions of the heavenly bodies, 
in what are supposed to have been the early ages of the world, have brought this knowledge upon the earth. It is not Moses and the prophets, nor Jesus Christ, nor his apostles that have done it. The Almighty is the great mechanic of the creation, the first philosopher and original teacher of all science. Let us, then, learn to reverence our Master, and let us not forget the labors of our ancestors. Had we, at this day, no knowledge of machinery, and were it possible that man could have a view, as I have before described, of the structure and machinery of the universe, he would soon conceive the idea of constructing some at least of the mechanical works we now have. And the idea so conceived would progressively advance in practice. Or could a model of the universe, such as is called an orrery, be presented before him and put in motion, his mind would arrive at the same idea. Such an object and such a subject would, while it improved him in knowledge useful to himself as a man and a member of society, as well as entertaining, afford far better matter for impressing him with a knowledge of, and a belief in, the Creator, and of the reverence and gratitude that man owes to him, than the stupid text of the Bible and of the Testament from which, be the talents of the preacher what they may, only stupid sermons can be preached. If man must preach, let him preach something that is edifying, and from texts that are known to be true. The Bible of the creation is inexhaustible in texts. Every part of science, whether connected with the geometry of the universe, with the systems of animal and vegetable life, or with the properties of inanimate matter, is a text as well for devotion as for philosophy for gratitude as for human improvement. It will perhaps be said that if such a revolution in the system of religion takes place, every preacher ought to be a philosopher, most certainly in every house of devotion a school of science. It has been by wandering from the immutable laws of science and the right use of reason and setting up an invented thing called revealed religion that so many wild and blasphemous conceits have been formed of the Almighty. The Jews have made him the assassin of the human species to make room for the religion of the Jews. The Christians have made him the murderer of himself and the founder of a new religion to supersede and expel the Jewish religion. And to find pretense and admission for these things, they must have supposed his power or his wisdom imperfect, or his will changeable, and the changeableness of the will is imperfection of the judgment. The philosopher knows that the laws of the Creator have never changed with respect either to the principles of science or the properties of matter. Why, then, is it supposed they have changed with respect to man? I here close the subject. I have shown in all the foregoing parts of this work that the Bible and the Testament are impositions and forgeries, and I leave the evidence I have produced in proof of it to be refuted, if anyone can do it, and I leave the ideas that are suggested in the conclusion of the work to rest on the mind of the reader, 
certain as I am, that when opinions are free, either in matters of government or religion, truth will finally and powerfully prevail. Footnote. The Bible makers have undertaken to give us, in the first chapter of Genesis, an account of the creation, and in doing this, they have demonstrated nothing but their ignorance. They make there to have been three days and three nights, evenings and mornings, before there was a sun, when it is the presence or absence of the sun that is the cause of day and night, and what is called his rising and setting, that of morning and evening. Besides, it is a puerile and pitiful idea to suppose the Almighty to say, let there be light. It is the imperative manner of speaking that a conjurer uses when he says to his cups and balls, presto, be gone, and most probably has been taken from it, as Moses and his rod are a conjurer and his wand. Longinus calls this expression the sublime, and by the same rule, the conjurer is sublime too, for the manner of speaking is expressively and grammatically the same. When authors and critics talk of the sublime, they see not how nearly it borders on the ridiculous. The sublime of the critics, like some parts of Edmund Burke's Sublime and Beautiful, is like a windmill just visible in a fog, which imagination might distort into a flying mountain, or an archangel, or a flock of wild geese. End of footnote. End of section 21. End of the Age of Reason by Thomas Paine